Welcome to the Republican Professor. This morning in California for me, we have a special guest, Tedla Walda Johannes. Mm -hmm. Dr. Tedla Walda Johannes is joining us from the great state of Indiana. Welcome, Tedla. Thank you so much, uh, Lucas, for having me. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Tedla is the author of a, a book that's been published just in the last few weeks, I think. Yes. A Philosopher's Testimony About the God Who Calls. And I'll show you a copy of it. For those listening on Apple, iTunes, uh, or Spotify, audio only, you won't be able to see it, but you could go to the YouTube and see Tedla's book. You can also click on the link that I will put, which will take you to Amazon, and you can take a look at the book there. Thank and you. The te Tedla, you self-published this book? I did. Did you edit it yourself? I just wrote it and I published You didn't pay an editor? I didn't know when there were no editor okay. for the book. I just wrote and I published like an email. <laughs> this is my first comment mm -hmm. about Tedla's book, which I've read 90% of it, I think. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe a little bit more. I can't remember. I can't more, tell. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I would get an A minus if it was just <laughs> on percentage of the book. I would get the A minus. <laughs> but uh, I only found less. I think it was less than half a dozen typos. Yeah, there are a few. I have seen that. Yeah, correct. So the fact that he did not, and uh, English is your second language. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Second language. Well, anyway, it's not his mother tongue. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many languages you speak, but. I but... speak, uh, including English, three. Three, okay. So Tedla was born and raised in a country called Ethiopia. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's in Africa. Mm -hmm. And uh, he basically taught himself English. And that's uh, that's talked about in the book. And for a book of this uh, material to only have maybe five typos that I saw so yeah, far, yeah. so far. Mm -hmm. that that's amazing he did not pay an editor so i i commend you for that alone the book Thank you is for, uh, a comment on typos typos i discovered i discovered typos in dictionaries remember reading yes that? that's right in english that's dictionary right. typo is just nothing but you know as they happen <laughs> tedla this is a great way to get into the book because two items that you purchased in Ethiopia yes. were a Phillips radio and an American Heritage Disc Dictionary. Do you uh, remember which dictionary? The American Heritage Dictionary was later on. It was a gift from uh, a biology professor later on, but I bought just one English dictionary, uh, just just one standard common, a smaller one, not mm -hmm. like a bigger one. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you you bought both or you have you prized both of those possessions because they helped you learn English. Yeah, the main reason I bought them was uh, to learn, yeah, to teach myself the English language. Okay. How, what year was that? I, I don't remember. It's like, um, 90s, maybe late 90s. 1988. Oh, in the 80s. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's, it's 89 or probably 88, 89, around that. 
your commitment to learning English very early on has proved fruitful for you. Thank you. As a writer here in America, and I hope that your book sells very well. Uh, it's. Would you classify this book as a philosophy book or as a biography? It's a combination. Okay. Yeah, three, there, are three chapters. there are three chapters uh, where I put together some content, philosophy content, but mm -hmm. the rest is mostly just intellectual content, my intellectual journey. It's not about just everything about my life. And yeah. I don't have a life that I think I should worth now writing about other than my ups and downs when it comes to now trying to pursue philosophy. That's the main focus of my book. It's not about just my biography or autobiography. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, as I when I started the book, I yeah. thought it was just a bi uh, memoir. I would say that that would be the genre. Yeah, memoir. intellectual memoir. You can add intellectual memoir if there's yeah. anything like that. I would say memoir. Mm -hmm. But also, then I realized about halfway through <laughs> that it would fit with your memoir that mm -hmm. it would also be a philosophy book. And yes, semi, I began... Semi kind of. Yes, something like combination somewhere. The combination, sorry for the interruption. The philosophy part is a smaller percentage compared to yes yeah well even the title look at the title mm -hmm. a philosopher's testimony yes. oh testimony. and then mm -hmm. when you read okay when you read through it it's a philosophy of religion book because uh, yes. a religious epistemology because yes. you say you are an evidentialist and testimony is standard yes. evidence of God. Yes. And so you're and you understand your whole experience in terms of evidence for God. Yes. That Correct. God exists. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Now, there's so many things that uh, are interesting about this book. Um, and as you as a person, I guess uh, we can hit. Oh my gosh, there's so many. I, as I was going through this with the first time you mentioned Gordon Clark, I smiled. I smiled Why so many smile? times. Why? Because because a Gordon Clark was a huge part of my journey. Oh, okay. Gordon Clark. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, when I still to this day, if I go into a Christian bookstore mm -hmm. and I see Gordon Clark, I have to buy it because really? it's an old one. Well, I mean, if I can afford it. Yeah. I, you know, sometimes they want too much. But there was a mm -hmm. there was a bookstore in La Mirada that just recently went out of business. They closed down and oh. they were selling old classic books like Gordon Clark, Thales to Dewey, mm -hmm. um, Reason and Revelation. Yeah. yeah Van Ventil. I just picked up a, a Cornelius Vantil one. Mm -hmm. So to see someone from so far away from where I grew up, mm -hmm. you are from Africa. I've never been to Africa. I mean, never, never been to Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. Conversant with these people that are important to me, uh, I, I couldn't help but smile. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, Gordon Clark, does there, is there any particular book that Gordon wrote that stands out to you that really made uh, an impact? 
the one uh, that played a role in my uh, struggle about the Trinity and the civilianism, modalism, that one I think was important. And also his book from Tedis to Dewey, I think. Yeah. Title. That, that was one really I helpful. read. Yeah, I read that book. I think I couldn't stop reading it because uh, it was really well written. And mm-hmm. then I think I can't say a lot about philosophers I have read whose impact is so deep when it mm-hmm. comes to you know which philosopher yeah. we have been reading. But Gordas was, I think, uh, deeper than any other philosopher because I read it maybe initially for like it's at the beginning of my journey especially Christian philosophy stuff. Mm-hmm. I think his work uh, had a lot uh, deeper impact, more than any, I can say. Mm. But I had to go against, you know, his, he was so anti-empiricist, he was so purely like a rationalist. Yeah. I'm no longer that way. So it took me some serious reading and reflection on Bill Olsten's book, The Reliability of Sense Perception, mm-hmm. uh, as an antidote to Gordon Clark's influence on my thinking. I didn't okay. talk about that, I think, in my book, but that's one thing I yeah, I could have mentioned. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I can see. I I think I don't I don't know if how wide an audience your book will have if if people are not familiar with these names, but for those who are, and there are quite a few people out there that have familiarity with this, probably yeah. at least thousands. Yeah. Um but uh I, I, I was enjoying reading it. I, it brought tears to my eyes many times, smiles many times. Mm -hmm. And I know that for me, it's because I know 90% of these names, either I've met them or I've read them. Mm -hmm. And of course I know you. And so I, every time, every sentence was in your voice that I was in my mind when I was reading, every sentence was in your voice. So I don't know how it would be experienced by people who have not met you or don't know who Quentin Smith is or yeah. or Richard Swinburne or Bill Hasker. I don't think I've ever met Bill. I've seen him. I know I know I've seen him. I've read his books. In fact, Bill, this might be we can get into Bill. We'll go back to Gordon Clark in a sec. First of all, you call him Bill. I I never called him Bill. Like I, you know, so I didn't know him in that way, mm-hmm. but, uh, William Hasker was one of the first people that was assigned to me to be read by Dr. Gordon or sorry, uh, Dr. Uh, um, Doug? Dr. Doug Grotice. In oh, a, Grotice. Of course, okay. Yes. Okay. It, I took That's metaphysics. Oh. I took metaphysics from him in the fall of 1999. The contours in Christian philosophy or something like that. Yes. It's yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a small book. That's right. Uh, Metaphysics, I think it was called. Yes, yes. And that's where I heard about emergent dualism for the first time. And mm-hmm. I might have even thought about open theism for the first time. And okay. so the whole. OK, so this is one of the smiles of my book. Mm-hmm. I'm reading this whole thing about Bill Hasker's influence on your life. And you're in Bill Hasker's office right oh, now right at Huntington. Now. Right now. Crazy. <laughs> yes. That is, is awesome. so crazy. Mm-hmm. Is he still alive? Yeah, he is. He's oh, okay. still alive, writing, and we even meet for lunch, uh, maybe That's once awesome. in a month or once in two months. And we email each other pr- pretty much almost every day. <laughs> <laughs> well, you narrate 
for those who haven't read the book yet, you narrate that Bill Hasker, a famous philosopher, a Christian philosopher, and he taught at Huntington College, where where Tedla is joining us from now, his office, was was talking to you back in Ethiopia back in the 90s, and he yes. was sending you money. Yes. So uh, just to and tell Bill the story. Yes. Yeah, yes, yeah. Yes. So this story about Bill Hasker, I think I included that in my book. Yeah, he had no idea when he sent uh, copies of his book. He included the invoice. <laughs> yeah, I remember that story. Yeah, so then, yeah, and then you had to pay taxes on that. Yeah, right. the post office they had to charge me. So they said, oh, man. they thought I was going to sell the books, and then they said, oh, you have to pay. And you know, in Ethiopia, and I didn't have money, and then I had to pay anyway to get the books. And then I told him, Bill, please next time if you send yes. me a book. Yeah, because he didn't know uh, there would be something like that that would happen. Right. Then he, I think, felt so bad for kind of you know forcing me to you know spend money to get the book. So he sent uh, twenty dollars like to replace what I paid in a book. Another book when he sent there was a twenty dollars bill in the book. I had no idea. He didn't say anything about it. When I was just reading and flipping through the books, I told it, what is this? And that's how he was trying to address my need at that moment. Now, we didn't talk about money a lot, but that brought up, you know, there was a need, maybe I want to help this person. Yeah. Yeah, that's how it came up. I mean, I was not talking about money. I didn't that... ask for money, things like that. But it happened, and then we started to yeah. uh, talk about, you know, how I live, things like that. That's mm -hmm. how he started to help. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that says a lot about him as a person and and also about you because your first foot forward in the conversation wasn't your physical needs, your first foot forward in the conversation was <laughs> was philosophical stuff. Yeah. And you what comes across is your absolute dedication and passion through suffering. Mm -hmm. Commitment to philosophy and your belief that God called you to be a philosopher. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so the whole time I was, I know, I knew that Hasker was an open theist. And so I was, I was waiting to see if you were going to talk about open theism. And I was mm -hmm. very surprised. I was warmly surprised at your chapter toward the end where you talk about your influence, uh, uh, how open theism may have influenced bill in his financial support of you consistently yeah. through all those years i thought that was very interesting and it was quite generous of you because you're not an open theist to yeah. say this is an interesting point in favor of open theism yeah, yeah. okay so then people listening they're probably like okay this is way over my head i don't know what open theism is you you do a pretty good job, I think, of going through when when you're going through the book, when you use a term, you will usually define it. Um, like open theism and Molinism and yeah. um theological determinism. You yeah. do usually define the term. Yeah. And it's interesting. I, I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. That's many semi-philosophy chapters so i had to do to say a little bit about those things yeah you yeah. say that um in the in the chapter on 
Okay. Let me double check here. On natural theology, the one when you say putting it all together. Yeah, it's yeah, interesting yeah, yeah. that you say that because in the whole time I was thinking, okay, if this is a philosophy of religion book, which I think it is, mm-hmm. I, 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 th- I was very pleased to see you, you said putting it all together, chance or providence, because I thought, okay, an atheist is going to say this is all just, yes, Bill is an interesting individual, you know, mm-hmm. he's just a very kind guy. That's just how he is. Yeah. And you link it to volition and will of you when you're receiving the evidence god gives you of his involvement in your life you have to be willing to receive it yeah and my question to you is then but why did you have this will this volition to accept the evidence uh uh why do you have the will that's a little bit tricky question yeah, we do have a will, of course, but how do you? How did you decide to exercise it or something like that? Right. Maybe. Mm-hmm. So, um, by the way, my dissertation—I don't think we'll talk about it today. Uh, probably another time. But my dissertation is on the role of volition in coming to know God. Mm-hmm. So, since that is where I come from, in my dissertation is that Moser stuff. That is that uh, primarily Moser. Okay, so the volition stuff comes from Moser. Okay. Just to give credit to, uh, when it comes to my dissertation and religious epistemology, it comes from Moser, and I, I mean, his account of volition is the one that I kind of embrace. Uh, we're t- we're so, talking about Paul K. Moser, who's at Paul Loyola K. University yeah, in Chicago. But there is also a difference between his view and my view. The, I go against his view when he rejects natural theology or arguments for God's existence, the standard traditional arguments. So that's where we differ. And then my dissertation was trying to address, or I tried to address this issue. Uh, people do not even consider the role of the will when it comes to formation of religious beliefs, not just beliefs in general. So I started thinking about it before I started reading even, I don't think reading more than influencing me, but Later on, I discovered his work to be, of course, very congenial, conducive to my own thinking. But it's not like uh, our perceptual beliefs. Belief formation about God, uh, there's something different, I said. And then I started to explore that one. And then comes this idea of evidence, religious experience. And my view of religious experience is wide open. I'm not going to say, the religious experience must be like this. There is no formula to it because it involves the will of a human agent and the will of God, of course. When we have two wills coming together, some some kind of interaction to give a formula would reduce, you know, volition to something like mechanistic. Something. So I cannot go that way. And then how do we decide to exercise our will? Now you you consider all the evidence, available evidence, and then. Uh, you might start to think to have inclination to form a belief and then uh, at some point people decide of course not just at the sheer you know, thing same saying oh I just must decide but given the evidence the evidence can suggest that it's the right thing to believe and then uh, you say yeah it makes sense you believe then that kind of uh, role for experience, and volition is something missing in the literature. And Paul Moser does not accept, of course, the classic voluntarism, 
I go against William Olston because he was an arch enemy of toxic voluntarism. <laughs> yeah. Of course he is. And then Plantinga and I said Moser. I don't know anyone as a Christian philosopher who decided to go the way I did. And then I said, I think there's something that has to be explained. And mm -hmm. then experience, I don't can God can't talk to me in any way. God can't talk to me through you right now. And then I, right. I, I have to be open. Anything yeah. that connects you now our understanding of we interpret our experience anyway, naturalists or atheists or believers or whatever. Yeah. We have a way of interpreting our experience. No experience just comes in isolation. Right. So we do explain. And then that chapter, the one you mentioned, putting it together, mm -hmm. chance or problem, that one chance, that one I wrote for atheists, by the way. I, atheists in mind, I'm thinking about them. So believers, they say, okay, just run like regular, random, right. but it doesn't matter. But atheists, they need some way of thinking about it. So that's yes. why I wrote that, exactly. So that's how I decided to write. And then we can also decide. There's a book title for my next book. Can we decide to believe in God? That will be mm. developing my ideas from my dissertation. Can I ask Many a question? will say no, including probably you. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask a clarifying question about Paul Moser's uh, view? You said he rejects natural theology, but he's an, he's an evidentialist, right? Yes, he's a good hardcore evidentialist. Okay, how how do how do those two things fit together? The rejection so of natural theology and evidentialism. Yes, so I would I should say my evidentialism is Paul Moser's evidentialism, or almost more. Okay. Or so he takes experience as evidence, mm -hmm. and now here is something that's not clear. I mean, he has been writing tons of you know a lot of stuff on this topic. Uh, when it comes to experience, uh, I said I'm wide open to God communicating God's reality to any human agent who is open to consider any evidence, right? And it could be dramatic, like Apostle Paul. It could be slow. It could be talking through the scripture. It could be uh, talking to a, through a friend. Mm -hmm. It could be you know, through the sunset or you know, watching whatever. So I cannot say exactly this or that. And Paul Moser doesn't say clearly what evidence should be in one sense, but he mostly talks about our conscience, moral okay. conscience playing a role and God intervening in our moral conscience. So I was have gotcha. been waiting for years for him to develop a full-blown account of that. For some reason, he hasn't done that, but still I am in communication with him. Um, I just started editing a book on his religious epistemology, so I'm going to ask him to develop that further. Okay. So that's where he is, and then he rejects all arguments for God, said this are the traditional ones, because they do not address volition, of course, and they mm -hmm. do not, yeah, that's the one reason. And God, in its view, is morally perfect agent. And, so uh, so would, it, from would it be fair to say that Paul Moser would uh, take, for example, the Kalam cosmological argument, would would he say that's completely worthless and yes. terms it's totally worthless it, it doesn't even, give us anything and it doesn't move the ball down the road at all never no no even on, in his view uh he's very clear not okay. just he's not just against he's not saying those arguments do not have really 
some real value, but he's even against them. They <laughs> distract us from a oh. genuine quest or you know search for God, hmm. because the God, he the way he understands God, uh, is his volitional, is a morally perfect, worthy of worship, and right. those arguments they do not get even close even to establishing as a conclusion. The God that's worthy of worship, volitional, morally perfect, blah, blah. They don't. Yeah, so gotcha. they distract us. They sh we should even avoid them. They are even bad for... Well, well Qu Quentin Smith would definitely take issue with that because, yeah. by the way, that was one of the most enjoyable parts of... My book, yeah. The, the book uh, yeah. was Quentin Smith who taught for a while at uh, Western Michigan University. And I, I'd only heard about him secondhand mm -hmm. from Jonah Schupbach, who- Oh, okay, he was okay. a student, yeah. He was a student there. And I think it was Jonah, it must've been, because I don't know how else I would have known it had to be Jonah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, 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 it might've been another professor that knew him that said that he slept in his office at school yeah. and that it, it it was crazy. I mean, it was like he would have like food in there from like two weeks ago and yeah, papers. Yeah, yeah. And so that I, I, I already had that view of him and then not, not no judgment. I'm not judging. I'm just saying that that's how I knew about him. And, and then yeah. when you filled out some of the, the why I think mm -hmm. a bit more, why he was like that because you presented him as being he could be easily distracted and not even eat for yeah, days yeah. yeah because he was so obsessed yeah so in other words he lacked the self-care he wouldn't get sleep yeah. he wouldn't get exercise sunlight he wouldn't get um he wouldn't even feed himself and it's yeah. like yeah. oh my gosh um, and, and you guys were like kind of caretaking him almost like you were helping him with his books. And, yeah. but anyway, it's just presentation of a man who's dedicated in the extreme. Like he would open packages of books and then just leave them there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and sometimes he had to reorder the books because he didn't know where yeah. his copy was. And, yeah. and you present a fuller picture of him, but also a gentle soul who yeah. uh, was not, even though he was an atheist, yeah. committed atheist, or actually you, you describe him as a pantheist, which I he, thought was yeah, very, yeah. Would he accept that? Would he accept yeah, it? I have his book right here. I'll show you. Right. He, he says that. Book. Okay. I just thought that was your interpretation. Here is his book, and uh, the title is uh, Ethical and Religious Thought and Analytic Philosophy of Language. I, uh -huh. I don't remember the year. In this book, the last chapter, he is clear about his commitment to, uh, he's a pantheist. I mean, he's an atheist, of course, in the sense that he rejects, you know, the Christian right. God or Abrahamic God. Yes, okay. Uh, but, uh, and he's a naturalist pantheist something like that i mean he changes his positions but that's like his okay. core view yeah well when you said he was a pantheist i thought it, initially i thought huh but then when i finished reading the chapter i realized that isn't best explanation for that was an interesting explanation for the presentation is he 
thinks the universe is so holy that he has yeah. to explain uh, he ha he's he's committed to understanding it why it exists yes. yeah he without god the, right yeah, why he, would he why would anything exist yeah he worships the universe basically <laughs> that's your question too why does anything exist rather yeah. than nothing so i love him i i have a plan to write a larger uh philosophy more philosophy content thing on uh, uh quentin smith at some point he gave me a permission to write if i want to write a full book on his work oh. yeah i have a permission yeah so i will wow go back and i want to do this i just this just uh, between us now and then whoever is listening or watching yeah uh he has this view and now i don't know how i got this view myself but i have seen for years uh i am okay so as a believer as a christian and i am also committed to some view about philosophy and a search for truth in general and when it comes to search for truth regarding god i find atheists who simply reject arguments for god's existence and who do not do you know more work i think that i really object that i think is not mm -hmm. uh, correct with committing oneself to searching for truth yeah uh, if if Theism is false. I mean, for atheists, that means this view is false. Okay. Right, then right. They, do they really care about truth? If they do, like Quentin Smith, the meta philosophy of naturalism, his essay, he was building a system. He was saying, hey, guys, yeah. atheists, you are not doing your work. Mm. Believers, they have done their work. They are wrong, but they have done their work. Yes. So we have to do our work. That was also my view. It just coincided with this view yeah i want to take this project further and then i'm going to develop it i had an, uh, a conversation with an ethiopian a friend who is an atheist in an amharic language a few days ago and in that discussion dialogue we've discussed this idea so in, instead of the burden of proof you now being on theists i am going to argue the burden of seeking truth it should yeah. be for both yeah, then yes. I want to develop that further, and then I want to honor uh, Quentin Smith. That's that very is kind. What he was doing it, he was not just looking for arguments to demolish an autistic arguments. He was saying, we need to give an explanation. Yes. If this is false, what else is the best explanation why right. the universe exists? And to his credit, Graham Opie is doing that work now. He's doing. Oh, is that right? Yeah, he's doing. Uh, yeah, he's doing this work. Uh, he's building a world view. Would hmm. compare with theistic worldviews and a naturalist worldview. He's an atheist, but uh, his view is more like a naturalist, a committed naturalist, of course, who is an atheist. He's not just arguing for atheism, but he's making a case for naturalism as a rational, you know, preferable view compared to theism. So yeah. two packages. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that kind of comparison because that gives people uh, a motivation to develop their views about why right. exists. When believers they say God, uh, I want atheists also to tell me why they think the universe exists. <laughs> yeah. So uh, why why do you think that there is something rather than nothing? Yeah, if the question is for all human beings, not for believers or no. I would think. Yeah. So it is I a really it's a kind to... of a jarring question. The first time you hear it, it might not sound that impressive, but if you reflect on it a bit it can become quite disturbing. <laughs> yes, it is. 
And Josh Rasmussen, yeah. our friend, Josh Rasmussen, he's working on this all the time. Like, why is there anything up there? So, yeah, so that's my, I, I'm going to, I will keep working on that to honor, I think, uh, Quentin Smith. Oh, good for you. I noticed yeah. that Graham Oppie made a comment on your book uh-huh. in, your, in the back. What's yeah. he like as far as uh, temperamentally? Is he similar to Quentin Smith? Is he friendly? Uh, no. He is he is friendly. I mean, I called him Saint Graham Opie. Did you see that? Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, he's friendly. He's a very smart person. He knows a lot about you know, what he does. A he got up person. at five o'clock a.m. to get it on your yeah. Zoom call. He's a very <laughs> very kind person. So I had to honor him by calling him Saint. Yeah, okay. he's friendly. I mean, he did that twice for me, and he would do it more. I mean, he's a very very uh, good person. So he's also a genuine person when it comes to asking questions about God. He's not pretending, he's not just missing atheism. He's working really, really hard uh, mm. to give an alternative view. If theism is false, I think uh, we should uh, say Graham Hope is getting things right. Now, of course, I don't agree, but he's doing his work. I so buy. when a Christian, when you teach philosophy, do you start with the question, why does something exist rather than nothing? I, at some point, I do when we discuss metaphysics. Yeah. What yeah. What is the What's the Christian answer to that? God. <laughs> <laughs> what else? <laughs> I mean, then you can do analysis of you know the concept of God or the nature. I of wish God. I could have been a fly on the wall listening to you and Quentin Smith and Graham Oppie. Yeah, I mean, Quentin Smith had no problem with thesis. He really loved working with them, trying to tear apart. And he was so honest, you know, at some point mm-hmm. when I wrote a, 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 my graduate s- a seminar paper to, you know, interact with his work. Yeah. Uh, and I came up with some arguments to show, you know, there is a problem with this view, but I was not confident about some parts of my paper. I had to ask Alex Proust. And he also said, yeah, you are right about the mathematics part. Then mm-hmm. I show uh, Quentin and for his class, of course, he said, yeah, you reputed my work. If this was already not published, I wouldn't publish it. Wow. That is Quentin Smith, how honest he is. And one day we were at a pub at, in Kalamazoo with grad students. He would, he doesn't drink, he didn't drink. He would just go there for water and then talk philosophy. And the students were just asking him questions, his own views, challenging his views. And he would change his view. He said, yeah, I think I'm wrong. And he moves on. And he keep, comes up with a different view. The following day, two or three, <laughs> no problem. Hmm. So he would just change his mind. Huh. But not about the ultimate now commitment, because that is a little bit Not about that, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are other things here and there. He adjusts, and then he tries to see. What explains his ultimate commitment, then? Uh, because he, I think he was convinced that uh, uh, the views he developed, okay, he says this, I think I, in my book I said this. He had this worry about uh, now what explains exactly why the universe exists. And he comes up with different theories, and then he publishes them, then people criticize, then he publishes again another one, then he has to like different theories. And then I have to ask him, what would, you, what would be something that you would regret when you die at some point in the future? He said, I would regret uh, dying not knowing what or which one of the theories I have been working on is true. Mm-hmm. That was the response. That's and not usually what people uh, people think of when they think of the term regret. Usually, yeah. 
the term regret has to do with something you did or didn't do. Yeah, so he wanted to find out the truth, and then he was not sure which one of those theories he developed right. or whether theism was true, but especially his own preferred views. He was not sure. And unfortunately, I didn't, I didn't get a chance to talk to him uh, for years before, up, before he passed away. Mm -hmm. I don't think he had anything new. I think that was the way things were. Gotcha. Yeah. What was it like working with Tim McGrew? Did you take classes from him? Yeah, yeah. Um, more than one class. I think he's really, really, really great. He's super sophisticated and he's a probability machine. He's really good, a very good person. I was very, very good person. Did you get an, more of an appreciation for inference to the best explanation working with him or the same? Uh, yes, I think I did. And because he, you do mention inference to the best explanation in your book, and at some point you mention it and you say, "Yes, this is how, this I is my methodology." Is that Paul Moser's view as well? Okay. Yeah, Paul Moser's view as well. But when it comes to evidentialism, I think Tim's work initially uh, made some good impression on me. When I was writing my first, I wrote my first essay for his class, and we were reading his view, his new book. It was like a manuscript of his book on externalism or something, internalism and externalism, I think. It's a very, really good book. So my, my initial reaction was to argue against his view. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then, of course, we were talking about it. And then my problem is still, I mean, evidentialism is a good view, but when it comes to uh, the theory of knowledge, uh, uh, justification is perfectly fine. But when it comes to theory of knowledge, uh, externalists, they get something easily, right? It's yeah. easier for them to do it. Yeah. So I had that question for also Tim in my paper. So mm -hmm. to give me an account of knowledge as, yeah. as, as an internalist, as, as evidentialist. So right. that was the kind of issues we discussed. But I had no issues with evidence playing a role. And as far as I can tell, I have always been eviden evidentialist without even knowing the term. <laughs> and reason needs to play a role anywhere uh, that's the uh, way I understand things. I, it's very hard for me to remove a reason or reasoning or evidence yeah. from anywhere but about anything, about faith or something. So that me and his view, I think, influenced me. And later on, Paul Moser's view also of evidence is also, yeah, of some. But, uh, some. That was the next question I was going to ask you is of when did you become an evidentialist and did you ever not? Did you ever waver from evidentialism? Oh, no. So Plantinga's view, externalism and Plantinga's you know, warrant proper function or whatever his view is, reform epistemology in general, that had some influence in me initially. I was just because I was very impressed with Plantinga's philosophy in general. Yeah. And it's his view is so influential. Uh, Talking about Alvin Plantinga, University Alvin, of Notre Dame. So yeah. yeah, so and also William Olliston. For me, William Olliston's uh, reliabilism and also his, was also reformed smallish, you know, like exactly the same way with Plantinga. Their views are really good impact on the way I think about beliefs and the rationality of beliefs. But I could never be convinced with this idea. Beliefs could be rational, but I am after the truth. Are they true? Right. And can I know? So when yeah. it comes to that, leaving that question to you now some mechanism of brick formation, uh, that could never satisfy me. So I, yeah, I am fine with the way of accounting about how we form beliefs and the reliability, things like that, and even 
proper function, design, whatever. At the end of the day, I have this question. Do do I really know the, the, those beliefs are true? <laughs> right. How do I know? That question brings back internalism. Yeah. No matter whether it's good or bad, and I would go with internalism. And then yeah. internalism and reason and evidence. Am I attending to evidence, reason? Yes. And then that's where I want to go. So that's where I am sitting. So the internalist in epistemology about justification, right? Yes. Yeah. About the definition of knowledge, justification, or the, whatever that feature of knowledge you want to call it, yeah. warrant, well, that you have to have some kind of access to yes. the process by which you become justified or that, that evidence is working toward giving you knowledge. Is that yeah. fair or would you say it differently? Yes, yes. And then here, here comes this complication about my obsession with intuitions, philosophical methodology mm -hmm. when I was at Biola. Oh, yeah, so, I, I remember that very well. I remember because yeah, so, you're the first one that ever got me thinking about so what intuitions that, are and why, how do yeah. we how do we trust them? <laughs> so it, it goes back to that problem, philosophical methodology. And then yeah. you go to right. analysis and then you even about the laws of logic. Yes. Yeah, you can't escape you can't escape using intuition. You can't. Yeah. But is that a consideration for the for the evidential value of them? I think yeah. that was your concern. Yeah, exactly. So if everyone relies on the intuitions and intuitions of course conflict, mm -hmm. and then where do we go? <laughs> when there is a conflict of intuition, what is where do we go to settle that now? Can you give an example of where intuitions conflict? I mean, some people about free, free will. Someone can say, no, yeah, we have free will, and another one can deny it. Internalism, externalism, anything about counterfactuals, whether they are true or the modernism stuff. People say, oh, I mean, yes, I can just think about this. <laughs> counterfactuals are just obviously true, someone said. Mm. So what ground is them? Nobody knows, right? And there, there is this sense of they are true. Some may say, no, they cannot be true. There is this debate always. Even when it comes to the laws of logic, mm -hmm. uh, I had to press Alex Proust in my in my book as well. I had to press him. So what happens when we get to the bottom of you know, all the debate and the nature of logic? Can we have any independent way of judging whether the laws of logic without relying on intuitions, whether the laws of logic are true or they hold? That was very tough. He did admit, of course, and people who take time to think about this, Right. They see the problem. So when yeah. it comes to what did what did Proust say? What did he say to that? Um, it, I mean, he did talking about Alexander Proust and we're hold on. I gotta identify who you're talking about just for everybody. Alex Proust, you're talking about Proust, Alexander Proust, who's at yes. Baylor, is that right? Yes, or Baylor, yeah. Baylor, okay. I quoted him in my book uh, about that part. When he has I was two PhDs. Through, <laughs> yeah, when I was going through the political crisis, the one I mentioned in my book, that's when I was thinking. So what? Can I do about you know right. uh, the laws of logic? And he said, mm -hmm. and generally, of course, they are reliable that we can tell. It would be really hard for us to deny that they work, mm -hmm. and we don't really need to rely on our intuitions, kind of. But that's kind of stuff. But still, I could have pressed them. I didn't want to do that. Right. I mean, I can still press any philosopher who wants to avoid relying on intuitions. Just give me an account of whatever you take to be fundamentally true, but do not rely on your intuitions. Do not <laughs> anywhere. Do not say to me, it seems to me, or it yeah, makes sense to it. me. Don't say that and just 
give me an account. That you is a can't, tough thing. You can't do that, right? I don't think yes, you can do that's that. What, that's what I'm just trying, trying to say. So yeah, what accounts gotcha. for the relay? If we have to rely on them, we need to give some account for why. Yeah. Some fundamental intuitions about fundamental issues. Well, getting uh, really yeah. clear about that, I think, is very helpful. Yeah, so that was my struggle, and then I moved away from that. But yes. still, I'm, I'm not saying I am done with that. Of course, it's, as long as you do philosophy, it will be there. Right. Yeah. Um, seems like, okay, at the most basic level, I don't want to keep beating this horse, but like uh, the most basic level, if you deny an intuition, the best, I mean, I'm talking about the best intuitions. Yes. It's a reductio ad absurdum, right? It reduces yeah. to absurdity. But then yeah. you reject the absurdity based on the intuition that the absurdity okay. can't be yeah. can't it's be the almost, right answer. Exactly. Exactly. So then, you always will have the intuition there. Yes. Then we have to look for a better way of which view, say naturalism, and then go back to a world view. Right. You know, is there is there a world view that uh co explains in some way in a better way uh our cognitive faculty now you can go back to planting up okay right, or, right. Okay. so is there any design plan for example that uh allows us or it's a legitimate way for us to think about this how our mind our thinking our cognition is supposed to work right. and then intuition is just part of it intuition you know like something completely different Right. And the way our perceptual practices work, we have also sensitive unitatis for planting, uh, okay, and then you can also add intuitions, and they have to do the work at some point, and then if we want to remove completely any reliance on uh, intuitions, even if we do science, and scientists, they can get to the bottom of issues, then one philosophical questions come up for scientific, you know, inquiry. Are they going to verify every single thing uh, using scientific method? Of course not. <laughs> I mean, they will still prefer now, you know, they, are, they have theories must be prepared based on some issue. Simplicity, okay, right. simplicity, come on. Simplicity, is, is it like part of, you know, a scientific method? Is that, right. Okay, so the theory preference about parsimony, all those things, they come right. down again to the way we put together our worldview and yes. within that worldview, we say, this makes sense to me. That's where I am now. Right. And then, okay, another person can say something different. And of course, people can work together or they can still you know, keep developing or pursuing their, the way they understand. You know. Let me go back to Ethiopia. Okay. Before you came to the U.S., in your background, when did you come to believe the Trinity? Okay, so initially, and I'm assuming you still believe the Trinity. <laughs> I do, I do, I do. Okay. I am still a Trinitarian. Yeah. Uh, maybe. And were I there any say, challenges uh, to the Trinity when you grew up in Ethiopia? No. Oh, so you know, I was a Marxist Leninist when I was a teenager. There no Trinity, so no religion, and then I became a believer. You know, now it was so surprising to hear from you that your grandfather was a board member for ICR. Yes, he was. <laughs> you can blame you can blame, blame some of ICR on my grandfather. <laughs> no, yes. I, I actually I have a lot of their classic stuff, and I really enjoy it. Actually, I still yeah, enjoy yeah. It. 
I had most of the books from Dr. Gish and Dr. Morris. When I came to the States, of course, I left the books back home. Oh. And later on, a friend of mine donated those books to Ethiopian Graduate School of Theology. So they oh, are is that right? Yeah. Oh, good. Saying. I'm glad yeah, they're so, not destroyed. Good. Yeah, so, yeah, they're no, 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 no destroying. I mean, they oh, have value. I hate have people who destroy books. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. So I, I, I asked my friend to donate them to the library. That's so, awesome. That's awesome. Uh, yes, when I became a believer initially, a Christian, so I had no idea about the Trinity, things like that. So mm -hmm. I ended up in a church. Hold on one sec. ICR is Institute of Creation Research in El Correct. Cajon, California. California. Yes. That and we're talking about Dr. Dwayne Gish and Dr. Henry Morris, two of the big names yes, there. And exactly. my grandpa was on the board. Yes, okay. that, Go that, ahead. that's Go ahead. so interesting to yeah, yeah. you say that in your email. You said what? So by the yeah. time when I was corresponding years ago, maybe when uh Dr. Gish, Dr. No Morris when they was had this copy, through the mail? Grand, was, yeah. Is this through the post, the postal service? The mail? You was this uh, no, letters or was this so, okay. emails? It was it was mail. It was mail then. Yeah. Then there were no there were no email until two thousand or something until when I started to use emails. Before that it was mail, of course. There was a point, there's a point in the book where the word email first occurred and it was kind of er, it's early ish in the book, but it's not right away. So yeah, at some point email yeah, email I started to use email probably in two thousand one, probably. Okay. Right. Before okay. that I, I, it was I letters. So, when you yeah, say letters. letter, you mean letter. Yeah. Okay. Letters, exactly. So when I was corresponding with uh, uh, the philosophers initially, Plantinga and or uh -huh. you know, Peter Van Logan and others. So I became a believer, and there was this church, uh, Oneness Pentecostals, I think in America. Yes, you so mentioned. We have a different name. And they don't, of course, believe the Trinity. So I I was there. I, I believed what I was taught and made sense. And then I started reading the scripture closely, and then I started to wonder whether that view was correct. I was arguing with everyone, with people from that church, and then I have had friends, of course, who were Trinitarians, and I argued with them, so I was not sure what to do. And I could tell it was a very important doctrine for uh, Christianity. Yeah. And I came across from the Trinity Foundation back to Gordon Clark. Oh. And Gordon Clark. So the Trinity really? Foundation had the president was John Robbins, probably, if you remember John Robbins, I think, yes, that was his name. So he was the, found, the director for the Trinity Foundation. All Clark's books, audios, whatever, everything was under, you know, he was using them, distributing or selling after Clark's death. Okay. So I had correspondence with him and he sent me a four page uh, summary of um, the Trinity from Clark's book, which had the title like the Trinity. Mm. Then that's when I I started to say, okay, so there is a contradiction. I I, I that was what I said. Oh, right. it's a contradictory view. And people, whoever says the doctrine of the Trinity has a problem, they usually talk about the contradiction. Right. And, and then Clark basically says, no, the sense in which God is one is different from the sense in which God. So, so the different senses. Right. But, oh, I I said what. And then I start to think, this was like something, this so easily, I'm at least making distinctions, okay? Yeah. I'm not saying the Trinity is easy or explanation is easy, but I'm how, saying, how old no, were you I when, didn't see that. Huh? How, older, how old were you when you said, what? In my, in my 20s. 
Uh, okay. Am I just going to so let you, so you knew what a contradiction was. You knew you knew yeah, what I a contradiction know. was com compared to a paradox. Yes, I was aware of that because of just reading theology books here and there, and then Gordon Clark was he was Aristotelian. I think he he loved the law of, law of non contradictions oh, so yeah. much. Every yeah. word in his writing is played a key role, and then he shows like I said, if there's no contradiction, of course, when it comes to the Trinity, logical contradiction, I mean. Then I I just lost one reason why I did not believe in the Trinity, and then it's right. like a skill falling of my eye. It's okay, now I believe in the Trinity, and then, of course, I started to learn more. Mm -hmm. Here's one point. I did correspond with Belligram uh, Evangelistic Association, theologians really? who... Yeah, I corresponded with so many theologians asking oh questions about the Trinity. Wow. And then I did not get adequate answers that kind of responded to my logical contradiction issues. When I read Gordon Clark, he said, philosophers know how to make distinctions. That was like one of the most important moments for me to see that I already saw the value of philosophy. I said, oh, philosophy can't help. Right. Yeah, then that then I kept reading more. And then I'm it's not like something I always read about or think about, but that was something I read a little bit more for years uh, initially. And then I started teaching, you know, how the doctrine of the Trinity is important in Ethiopian churches or some Bible schools. So that's what I did for years. I'm I'm looking at your uh, page seventy two. You have a, a an outline of your Trinity. Yeah paper and one one on number three on on uh, roman numeral three three point two mm. you say the being versus person of god so this would be a great paper I, I wanted to it is odd how we talk about god it's a little odd because yeah. we'll say yeah. he as if it's just yeah. one i mean person because mm -hmm. he's personal yeah. pronoun so we'll say yeah. he this and he that and and then yeah. who are you talking about god I'm talking about god well then yeah. but so but we do make this distinction between the being and the person of god how do you does that sound weird to you uh if the trinity doesn't sound weird i mean we have to think of again which will sound so weird yeah because unlike anything Unlike anything that we are familiar, we know, we think about. So, yes, it sounds weird, but ultimately, uh, weird things happen anyway in physics, quantum <laughs> physics as well. Right. So people, you know, so say, weirdness oh, is not evidence that it's not true. Yeah, it's not. I mean, if that weirdness or strangeness or some craziness about a view is you know, yeah. evidence for it's being false, we should just reject quantum physics or something like that. Yeah, I'm weird. You're weird. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, but you obviously exist. So. So and <laughs> yeah, then here's sense. one thing. Yes, it does sound weird, but uh, by the way, it's probably uh, interesting to just mention this here. So you know, I mentioned J.C. Beale in my book somewhere. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. University of Connecticut. Book. Yeah. He. Yeah. He is now at Notre Dame, by the way. Oh. Okay. Yeah. He is now at Notre Dame. He has a book uh, which will be coming out uh, maybe within a year, with Oxford University Press. And he wants to address this issue of weirdness, strangeness, non-parent contradiction or real oh, contradiction by saying great. the Trinity is an actual contradiction, the, the, oh. the divine contradiction. He has a book now. 
Oh, so he's not a Christian? He is a Christian who he embraces contradictions. Oh, man. Contradictions. That's not good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he has a, he has a book on the incarnation, the contradictory Christ. Have you heard about this? Yeah. No, no, I don't follow yeah. him. I, I, I invited him uh, for a public lecture at the University where I am now, Huntington, or Huntington. He came last March. He gave a, a public lecture on his book, The Contradictory Christ. Wow. And then he's a non-classical logician, and he is saying, now we have been trying to solve the logical problem of the Trinity. Forget it. Embrace the contradiction. Move on. So he did. He did publish this book. He, the Trinity one is uh, not published yet. Okay. Yes, but I have the manuscript. I have started reading it. I have to go back, and I am going to teach philosophical theology this semester, this fall semester. So I am going to invite him to talk about his book to my students through either Zoom or in person, if you can come here. So this is where philosophers are now. I mean, some philosophers, or at least J.C. Bill. It's weird. Yeah, it is weird, and it should how, be. How could he be at Notre Dame and not at Notre Dame at the same time and in the same respect? But he, would, uh, he wouldn't apply that kind of view to everything. He would apply that only to the ultimate reality or to God. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, yeah, I mean, people usually, of course, ask him, uh, bring this issue uh, about contradictions can be true, explosion, you know, it could be about anything. No, he says some principles, there has, there has to be some principles that limit uh, how this, you know, contradiction should not explore or expand or apply to everything. So he has mm -hmm. a way of doing that. I said, right. logical stuff, this is not my stuff, that is his stuff. Gordon Clark is turning over in his grave right now. Yeah, Deadla. totally. And many other philosophers. Even, yeah, yeah, actually, but all I of mean, them. This is, this Maybe is not Kierkegaard. I, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think it's a legitimate philosophical inquiry. I'm, I'm totally open to it. I'm, I have, uh, I just started working on an essay to develop a religious epistemology that can make sense of what J.C. Bill is working on. Oh, good for you. But I don't it's know. Very charitable. I don't know. I'm just trying to see. I had him in my class uh, just to talk with my students, and I have like some interactions. I do interact by email. I want to see how he does reject also arguments for God's existence, like Paul Moser. Just this something. Mm -hmm. He hasn't published on that, but I am trying to get him, you know, write something and publish on his view on religious epistemology. He hasn't done writing, of course. He has just his thinking. So I want to see whether rejecting the law of non-contradiction in some domains can still allow us you know, to embrace uh, some doctrines are contradictory and it's still rational or something. So I'm just trying to see where we can go with this view. I will probably reject or I will, I don't know what I will do. This yeah. is an open question now. Well, I thought that was pretty funny. Um... The little anecdote that you give of Peter Vandenwagen, um, uh -huh. where he, um, okay. So Peter sent you $500 and yeah. this is on page 95. Yeah. And <laughs> you said he, he didn't respond to your jokes, but I thought your jokes are pretty funny because Peter's view yeah. uh, metaphysically is that, um, 
the things like mm-hmm. uh, tables and chairs don't exist. Uh, there, there's elementary particles that exist table wise and chair wise, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. So then you, <laughs> you said, you said, um, <laughs> that dollar bills and Ethiopian money do not exist. Uh, jokingly, I said that Peter sent me something that does not exist. <laughs> Peter did send me these books. And I also told him that since books do not exist, he sent me non-existing things. Or to be more uh, exact, he sent me elementary particles arranged dollar bill-wise. Uh, Peter did not uh, write back about these jokes. I, I laughed. That was great. And there's a lot of, yeah, I'm a, to me, there's a lot of funny things. I'm not sure if you meant to be funny at all the places I laughed. but Yeah, I mean, there are philosophically now commentaries here and there. And for people who are not familiar and people who are familiar, yeah, and, you know, when you think about Peter Van Wagen, how smart he is, how influential he is. A lot of people, people say he's intimidating. Intimidating, of course. And many people, I am sure, have no idea how generous he was to me. So I want to acknowledge that. That's very nice. And yeah. he was the one who sent me like like 500 once. And I was noticing, what's going on with this person? I'm so <laughs> generous, incredibly kind. It was an immediate response. And then, of course, I joked like that. And then I had a chance to meet with him a few times after that. Did I mention that he came to Western Michigan to, uh, yeah, I did, I think, in my book. Mm, yeah, I don't, I don't remember that part. Yeah, Quentin, Quentin Smith, I asked Quentin Smith to invite Al Plantinga to come to our seminar. Al was not able, and then we managed to get Peter Van Wagen. Oh, he cool. Yeah, so we met there again, and then after that, we met at conferences. One time at a philosophy conference, he insisted that I would sit with him, his wife, and other big names to eat dinner together. I tried to avoid to give them time. I mean, okay, so from my book, you have seen that I'm, I'm corresponding with all kinds of philosophers. I respect them. I know how smart they are, but I'm, I'm, I just relate to them at human level. I just perfectly fine. But I want also to be considerate. I want to give other philosophers yeah. Who might be, you know, who might be looking for an opportunity to talk about their work. Yeah. So I tried to avoid taking their time, but insisted I should sit and eat, and I did. And uh, 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 David Lewis's wife was with us hmm. for dinner. Wow. Yeah, Steffi was with is us. Is she a uh, philosopher? This is a good question. I mean, I don't think she was a philosopher, an academically trained philosopher, but I. I think she did some work in philosophy. I don't think she was a philosophy professor, but of course she was David Lewis's wife, so, and she, yeah, she was. Gotcha. I mean, they. I think David Lewis and Peter Van Nagel, they respected each other a lot, and yeah. they had dinner together. And then I was there, just eating the dinner and just talking a little bit <laughs> with Peter Van Nagel's wife and with Peter a little bit. He is the person, the first person who said in an email. Say when I said Professor Van Nogg, he said, "Call me Peter." Mm. I mean, just imagine Professor Van Nogg like that to a stranger yeah. from Ethiopia. He just said, "Call me Peter." Let's let's. I'm going to step back a second and kind of summarize the whole thing here really quick because people might not know the significance of this. Well, <clears throat> so Tedla grows up in Ethiopia. And he, um, I didn't know that you were a Marxist-Leninist. I actually didn't know that. Was that in the book? I didn't see that. Yeah, in the yeah, book. yeah, that was in the book. Initially, when I was growing up, Ethiopia was, 
Marxist socialist country. Yeah. Okay. So, so you, yeah, the country, but I didn't know you yourself. You I yourself was. was a Marxist. Okay. Yeah, a juvenile Marxist. Okay. So you're uh, you're a Marxist Leninist and an atheist, and mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> then you become a Christian. And I mean, you're like full on Orthodox Christian, right? There's no major doctrine you disagree with. I am. I'm totally. Yeah. Uh, even you can call me when, a serious. There, there's Christian. no heresy. So no heresy, words, as far as I can all tell. the historical <laughs> heresies, none of them are in Tedla. This, yeah, no, no, this no. is, this is from my view. I'm, I'm thinking, how do I explain this? How do I explain this belief formation? That's, that's because I know the challenges at every step of the way. Well, Tedla, for some reason, I don't know if it's just his, I don't know, I don't know how to explain you, but you take the, take this, for example, yeah. you pick up a pen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know how you found the address. You found the address with no World Wide Web, no internet. No, yeah, no. You found, so it's not like in the Addis Ababa, uh, sorry, I'm saying the Sarabha. name of the town, yeah, right? Sorry, wrong. Addis Ababa. It's not like you go there and there's a phone book and it says Notre Dame philosophy department. <laughs> you know, no, here's the address. No. You and you you're struggling with English. You take the pen and you write rock stars of American philosophy. I mean, it's like it's like the Bono. Mm -hmm. yeah. from you too it's the uh it's the david or that's not his it's his real name his fake name is edge mm -hmm. you're writing these people and asking for help with learning philosophy and, and and they send you their books and they send you articles that you couldn't get otherwise they're sending you money yeah <laughs> and, and uh bill alston bill william alston syracuse for many years i'm actually friends with one of bill alston's star students um, Who was that? i serve with him at church uh, his you? name is his name is greg gansel oh yeah we're on the we're on the church facilities committee together really? yeah. say hey for me <laughs> yeah 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 he's bill alston's student and yeah. i know anything i know about alston i know from him okay and okay. I don't really know how planning and Alston, what, how they differ. Do they differ in any way? Yeah, they do. Uh, for okay. example, epistemology, yeah, they do. Okay. Well, but these are huge yeah, names. That, yeah, so reformed yeah. epistemology is an umbrella, but uh, Bill Alston is not from a reformed tradition. Mm -hmm. But there is this externalism, reliabilism part. That's where they come together. And okay. then also... This issue about justification, of course, uh, Warren is for Plantinga, and for Bill Oriston, it was like talking, speaking in terms of justification. And those issues, externalism, reliability, those are the main things, and about the rationality of religious beliefs, especially. They're both foundationalists, though, right? Foundationalists, yeah, those yeah. things. Exactly. So they got that right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then That's Nick, a big thing to get Nick, right, Nick too. Nick Waltersov and Plantinga are they are actually yeah. formal yeah, people, yeah. There, there's so many moving parts in this interview here yeah, there's so many it. moving parts because yeah, I don't know you got all the technical the... you got yeah. the technical distinctions and then you've got the the cultural issues the cultural issue is that i'm trying to get across is 
that Tedla, the average American would not do this because well, of culture. Yes, because of culture. Because, yeah. well, actually, the average Ethiopian wouldn't do this either. So, probably, yes. But um, America, that one is correct. Here is yeah. a, a, a reminder. I would have so been too I scared. Was, when I was at Biola, uh, Alex Plato, our friends, of course, you know, Jonathan and our close friends, when they saw books signed by Plantinga and Alston and those guys, since you guys are Americans, you have the celebrity culture, you now famous yeah, people, right. whatever. I have That's no right. idea about that. Yeah, I had no mm. idea. <laughs> Yeah, that would have been like having Springsteen's Born in the USA with his signature on it. Yeah, so I'm, for me, it was like a philosopher sent me a book, his book. That's it. Yeah. This person is very famous. Yes, I came to learn that later on. Initially, mm -hmm. I didn't know. Okay. But it didn't matter anyway, even if I knew. I needed some books. I had to beg. Yes. And then right. if this person is willing, I just would get the books and read. That was what I was interested in. And later, my friends, they right. also said, well, what if we'd auction ourselves these books and make some money? You know, do you, did, did you keep all those books with the signatures? A very sad thing is oh, most of them are not with me. They, were, they are gone. There was a friend of mine in California. I left my books, box of, a lot of boxes of books in California, and I was traveling, and I didn't get a chance to collect them. Then I asked him, hey, when am I going to get my books? And I keep asking, I keep asking. One day, my friend, he said, they are, they are not there. What happened? Mm. Flood. Basement oh. flood. Not like an actual flood, but there was pipe or whatever. And there was a flood in the basement. And then he lost everything there. I said, okay. But still, I'm in oh some my gosh. Books. I have some of them. I would have been I so traumatized. You, I, want I want to show you one. one. Oh, my gosh. Oh, man, that kills me. Okay, now I have this. Uh, copy logic from planting. It's actual copy. I wow. mean, he didn't write this one. Uh, but That's a book uh, I used for teaching logic. Uh-huh. So this is an actual, here is Alvin planting a signature. Oh. Uh, can you see? God bless. Yeah, yeah, I see. Tedla, is that in your handwriting down below? Seven, uh, July 7th, 1997. Is that all in his handwriting? No, no, this is my writing. Okay, down yeah, there. I see. But this one is his name. His gotcha. gotcha. So, okay, when I donated my books to the Ethiopian Graduate School of Theology, the mm -hmm. ones that I left back home, mm -hmm. I had to ask a friend because I lost my books. I had to ask my friend, send me at least this book, at least to have a book you now signed by Planting. I have others, a few other books by him. Do you have any that are signed by uh, by Alston? Uh, unfortunately, I never kept any letters. Here is one. Oh, uh, you don't letters. have the letters? Oh man. No, nothing. I have letters, okay. emails, of course. Emails are still there, some of them. But here is a problem. You want to print? You want to print this... those out? You want to print those out and put them in an archive for for historians later, just in case there's any issues. <laughs> Seriously. So here is the thing. I'll help you do that at some point. Okay, so. Here is the thing. I since I did not have this mindset about you know, how valuable those correspondences with those people it's were and are, yeah. I just didn't keep anything. I just moved away. I just moved yeah. from one place to another. It would be a I lot to carry. It would be a lot to ha have with you. Yeah, yeah, I mean, at least I could do. You know, I could the, the letters, but when 
Peter Van Wagen complimented me on my English in 1998. I showed, oh, here's the letter from Peter Van Wagen. He said, I don't remember what happened to the letter. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I didn't yeah. have that. Yeah, I don't that, have any habits. Most people don't have, don't have habits. that. Most people don't have that way of looking at the world. Like, yeah, and, I, and there's one more thing. Whatever I have written in schools all my life, unless I have some of them in my emails, I don't keep anything. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I never cared. I don't know what that reason is. I just don't keep anything. <laughs> well, that doesn't surprise me given your, so like, your view about grades. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. That's why probably That's I never cared about lecture. I don't usually take lecture notes anyway. Yeah. I just watch and I listen me. and then I go to the library and read. Remember, we you know, go to the library all the time. Like Josh <laughs> Rasmussen. Sitting next to Josh Rasmussen in class, uh, he would just sit there and stare at the professor. <laughs> yeah, I, I, <laughs> he never I, he never took any notes. Yeah, I, I took I took so many notes. Yeah, I don't know how to take notes. I mean, I prefer to listen. And if I was given a chance in my life, I would never go to any class anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. Anywhere yeah, except I mean, sometimes I would go to public lectures. Yeah. And sometimes to topics, if the topics interest me, to my own professors, wonderful professors I love. If I right. was free not to attend, I would just attend very few classes. Yes. Well, that's very ancient way of doing philosophy because philosophy was done in conversation. It yeah. was very Socratic the way you did. It was very classical. It's very normal in the ancient world to do it the way you did it. because, And, you know, it's about the personal encounter. Yeah, the personal encounter with the question in the dialogue and that. Well, that's why I think the evidence of those letters is is so tragic. I'm sorry, I don't want to make you sad. Yeah, and yeah, I know yeah, it probably won't make you sad. But but yeah, I, yeah. For, I one of my Ph.D. Uh, research tools was archival methods. And so oh, I had to take okay. uh, my professor was a historian and she was mm -hmm. a professional archivist. And one of the things we had to do is go to the Claremont College Library, which is a huge library, special collections room, which is a huge room. Mm -hmm. And it's it's you know, it's at least two stories high and okay. and it has these special collections. And and most people don't know what is going to be valuable for future generations yeah. and they yeah. don't think about it. They, yeah. that's just human nature. We don't think about stuff like that, but, yeah. but historians think about that kind of stuff. They think that yes. will be something worth keeping later. And when you process a collection, like I did, I processed a, a collection for their archives. Mm -hmm. um, you go through and you sift through and you try to figure out what to put in which folder and how to, how to describe it for future generations, because people have limited time and you have, how will they know what's in there if you don't describe what it is accurately? Yeah. And yeah. it's hard to do. It's actually very difficult to do. Yeah. Um, so, I want, so I want to I want to show you this. this which is book is book. that? Which From is Quentin Smith, the book I showed you earlier. Oh yeah, yeah. So it's good to read this for an hour. Oh, Since we're talking great. about you now signature thing like that. Yeah. This is an actual signature by Quentin Smith. I'm glad. Did you have to ask him to do that or did he just do that? He did that. He just did it. I didn't Good. ask him. I mean, I was hanging out with him all the time. And then yeah. when I was at his house helping him, and I had a student 
a stipend thing like that. Uh -huh. I was, my scholarship was covered. And then I had my friend Jason, my roommate, he was working for Quentin, he was paid. Mm -hmm. And then when I was there to help Quentin, he, he, I told him, of course, he didn't have to write a check for me because I have scholarship from school. So I was saying, okay, I want just to get a, an extra copy from your books if you have extra copies. Yeah, he had a lot of them. Yeah, he just, this one of them, he wrote. That's great. Saying for Tedla, a philosopher by his metaphysically necessary individual essence, <laughs> the philosopher language, says you are doomed like the rest of us. Condolences, Quentin Smith, Quentin, I says, just Quentin, 4407. That's awesome. That just See, that's, a, that, that's great. That is a kind of you now signature and books. This one is stuck from here, so I, I have it. Uh, not lost well, in blood or something. Now, if you are influential for the rest of your life mm -hmm. and you die mm -hmm. and someone is going to write a PhD on Tedla Wolda Johannes, the great mm -hmm. philosopher from, remember he wrote the book, uh, Philosopher's Testimony about the God who calls. Remember it, it sold 7 million copies. Remember that? <laughs> Seven, so 700 maybe. He grew up poor. He grew up poor. He was a Marxist. Then he was, he checked all the boxes for historic Christianity and he got a PhD. And well, those letters would be a, the riches of Babylon for writing a dissertation like that. And so that's why that's all I was saying is, is yeah, yeah. people, way, you don't think that way. And I don't think that people I, I don't typically think don't that think that way. way. I don't think I would ever but be later, but late, but if you did, Later, the historians would be saying, "Thank you, Tedla, for preserving these for us." Yeah, so. but I never take myself seriously as an important person know, anyway. I so I would that would never cross my mind. And but one thing I did was writing this book. At least I gave a chance for people to see. That's right. Yeah, at least I did something because it's uh, on your. It's based on your memory and exactly. Yeah, and that's good. Yeah, look just to. For the viewers as well, someone as a, there was a book launch for this book, Ethiopian community in DC area, Silver Spring. So a friend was, was wondering how I kept, you know, how I remembered all this. Right. Uh, initially, part of this book was written when I was at Biola, like the oh. first part. And okay. at that moment, I mean, you are one of my friends. I would talk about you now my life. You guys ask me questions. I talk. It's all like fresh in my mind. Mm -hmm. I was talking about like almost every other day. And I was I was in the States at that time only for like the first two years of my life here. Right. Everything was fresh. Yes. Right? So that's what I wrote then. And then oh. you see how that's how I kept it. If I that's had no amazing. conversations with you guys, yes, uh, like fresh conversations like with many people, I would yeah. repeat the same stories, right? When I did that, that was like fresh memory. And then I that's wrote right. that, especially the Ethiopian part, the older right. part. And the rest, of course, is, of course, my life here. This one is like almost current. Yes. You see, you get that's helpful. So that's that's how, helpful yeah. for me to know. Yeah, exactly. So that's how I kept it. Yeah. If I didn't get a chance to talk about my past when I was at Biola, and if I decided to pick up to write this book right here, mm. uh, most of that I don't think I would remember. Like correctly the way I remember at that time, like 15 years ago. That's made a difference, I think. That That does help. Yeah. I see that I I am referred to one time in the book 
Yes. I'm not I'm not mentioned by name, but I am referred to. So Yeah, and the, did you discover that? I did. Page 197 yeah, at the bottom. It was like an assignment. What page? 197. One the UC Riverside already, trip. Yeah, we went up to UC Riverside my, to John Martin Fisher, yeah. Yeah, that was my assignment for you. You discovered it. <laughs> that was hilarious. And yes. the whole she thing, I remember that very well. So yeah. I I remember going there. You gave me a ride. I gave you, yeah, of course, yeah. We of drove up together. Yeah. We drove up together. And you, there's another uh, part of the story that didn't make it into the book. But yeah, the part of the story that I remember was that we went to get hamburgers. And yes. you said to me that you loved hamburgers. <laughs> I mean, it was it was so passionate. You were <laughs> like, "I love hamburgers," mm -hmm. yeah. And and I I'd never seen that kind of passion for hamburgers before ever in my life. <laughs> and I realized I love hamburgers too. Yeah, and mm -hmm. I should be passionate about. It. That's right. And <laughs> and then I remember we got hamburgers. I think you got two. And I remember thinking, yeah, we'll get get oh, get two, of course. I mean, the hamburgers are awesome. What's that? Did, did you, do you remember what you took me? Is it uh, in and out, maybe somewhere else? I don't know what you took me. I don't remember. I, I, I don't remember. think it was. I don't think it was in and out. I think it was a, just that. a local hamburger place. Okay, I love that in and out so much. So I was yes. thinking maybe was it there? I don't know. I don't remember where it was. Well, I think I remember the hamburger. To be honest with you, I think I remember it was a substantial patty. At like In and Out mm -hmm. does not have it. It was you oh, know okay, where okay, the beef okay. is you know big and and uh, I think it was must have been a local place, a, a local mm -hmm. pop mom and pop kind of a shop. But yeah, there was also yes. something I did not include about John Martin Fisher. You know our discussion about GRE. Remember? Jerry, GRE, the GRE, the oh, GREs, yeah. yeah. Was that was when very, we were together, or did I? I talk was about stressed that? out about it. Yeah, I, I think. I at that moment I was very stressed about the GREs. Yes, that's true. Maybe we talked about that. He told us about his story about Cornell and that's, things like that. I didn't that's include that, right. but yeah, I didn't include that. But no, there are so many things to include. But I have oh, to you have a good say. memory. Yeah, I remember a lot. that because that was important. That's right. That's right. Yeah. You and me were on the same GRE issue. We were both. Yeah, and John Martin Fisher, that brilliant philosopher, telling us, you know, yeah, it is now okay. <laughs> it was Gary something. Gary, yeah. what's his last Watson? name? Yeah. Watson. Yeah. yeah, of course, Gary Watson. Yeah, they're both big free will guys. Yeah, and they were there. And they were talking and they were like, yeah, Tedla's going to come. She, uh, she, this, and she, that they were talking about you and you were right there. Yeah. And I was like, this is Tedla right here. <laughs> they, were, they were like, wait, hold on. Not a woman. Yeah. So that was funny. I'm glad that made yeah. it into the book. Yeah. 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 It was an interesting story. You said that you, uh, you, you mentioned Eleanor Stump several times and she, yeah. you had several classes with her. Yeah. What was it like to work with her? She's a famous philosopher at St. Louis University, uh, medieval philosophy, philosophy, religion. Yeah. Yeah, she is. She is, she is incredibly good, an excellent philosopher. And uh, more than anything, she is an excellent, really, really good person. Mm. It's very hard to describe how good she is. And, and I said this to her. Uh, I don't say I don't think I said that in my book, but 
I did say in an email to her, I think I want to call you Saint Eleanor Sam. <laughs> I've heard good things about her. Exceptionally good, a very kind, very understanding, encyclopedic knowledge about medieval philosophy and, of course, contemporary yeah. philosophy of religion. Yeah. Her comments were detailed, very helpful. Nothing is mean, everything constructive. Hmm. Some philosopher, you you can't just stop appreciating. Yeah. Very, very, very kind person, very wise person. Wisdom, incredible. Now I notice, I notice you didn't talk much about John Greco, but he uh, was a major figure too. You took five classes yeah. from him, and he was your yeah. supervisor. He was. Yeah. Um, so you guys worked adequately together, but did yeah. you? You obviously didn't see eye to eye on epistemology or philosophy of religion. No, he, 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 I mean, John Greco. Is also another really kind, famous. very understanding person. I would say he's pretty famous, right? As an epistemologist, he is, he yeah, is. yeah. He's a very excellent epistemologist. Mm -hmm. He never, ever, even once tried to influence me in any way. Not he only me. I mean, he didn't get never. to try to drink Nicolaber. No, he just he argues for his own views, and he just is open to anyone arguing against his views, always. So when I wrote my dissertation. As an evidentialist, you know all that stuff, and he never tried to show that my view is really bad because evidentialism, internalism, or whatever. He's perfectly fine. He wanted me to say my view was adequately developed and well formulated. He made sure that was fine. That's it. And then one thing, one thing that I mentioned in my book as well. He knew I would work independently. Yeah, and that's right. I, that was a compliment for him. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this is something so strange for people to hear. He right. and my, he, with the two of us, I think we would meet like once in a semester. He just let me just do things. <laughs> yeah, he he I must mean, have been he, pretty confident in you then. He was. I was going to say that. He was so confident and he knew I was working on Paul Mother's stuff and you know, all the EPS. Evangelical Philosophical Society online right. symposium. I was busy with that, and he would, of course, ask me you now how that project was going. He knew I was very much involved, so he mm -hmm. wanted me to use my time to develop some of my views there, and he knew some of those views would make their voice into my dissertation. Right. So he gave me all that freedom, and then making sure how many years I was working with him, and I was just yeah. meeting the deadlines. And yeah. he wanted to make sure I was meeting the deadline. Good. Between that, I was free. That's great. Yeah, and, and his comments, one thing. When he comments, uh, incredibly penetrating. Hmm. So scary. Scary. And his Yes, his questions. Uh, if you go to conferences to see how he formulates questions, you have no idea how he thinks about those questions right there. And how he formulates them clearly and in a penetrating way. Mm. And then, of course, I was planning to work with Professor Stamp, and my dissertation was going in the direction of religious epistemology. Yeah. So he was, of course, the epistemology guy there. And then I, he's the one who initiated the conversation. I took five seminars from him, and he knew what I was doing. And he said, 
Yeah, I mean, I know we have been following you, what you are working on. And then when are you going to do your prospectus, proposal? And then I was about to ask him and mm -hmm. he and I will, he, he would stay in a hotel uh, near where I had my, an apartment. And we would both take a shuttle to go to a slope, like a couple of miles. And then we would see each other on a shuttle many times. And the one of those days said, oh, so, you know, you are almost done with your coursework. So what's going on? And I already had my dissertation uh, topic when I was finishing my first year and starting my second year. I already had my view. Hmm. And I already talked to Duncan Pritchard, you know, Duncan Pritchard, the epistemology guy. I and don't I know him personally, but I've heard yeah, of him. Yeah, I, I know him personally, and he's a great guy. So I talked to him, I talked to other philosophers about what do you think, what do you think, before I started to you know, jump into the project. Yeah. God, this is something not explored. And then I was planning to do it. And then I talked to uh, John Beko and he's, I asked him formally in an email. I didn't want to say, oh, I'm going to ask you whatever. No, I did that. And of course he said, yeah, go ahead. And then we can work together. And he gave me ultimate freedom, what I needed to, to do philosophy the way I have already been doing. Incredibly good. Ted, yeah. can I ask you, have you ever been at, uh, these parties or, or, or philosophy areas where you are, did you feel like you were, would, did you, do you drink alcohol? I don't even know. Not now, but I did. I, I stopped okay. drinking just for some health issues, whatever I did. Okay. For beer, do you have cigars? Socializing. Yeah, socializing do you ever have cigars? What? Do you ever have cigars? No, I have okay. friends. Of course you know them. <laughs> okay. So I you never I felt like know. you had to, you, you were never pressured to, kind of do these hobnob kind of things where you have to network. And uh, so Stump never said, hey, you want to have a cigar? And you're never in a position where you're like, uh, no, no, uh, no, I don't have I mean, cigars. I have friends who did have this cigar business. I don't know, but I have I have never tried it. But I did smoke cigarettes when I was younger. And I oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I would socialize. I did socialize with, you know, at conferences. Now, drinking beer, that was like normal. And right. you know, okay, here's one thing. So for Ethiopians, evangelical Ethiopians, drinking any alcohol is abomination. It's just, just for most of them. They cannot even comprehend you are still a believer if you drink any alcohol at all. For which, for who now? Ethiopian from my country. Ethiopia. And then, gotcha. Yeah, of course I, uh, I did drink for socializing now, whatever. And I stopped drinking, but nothing to do with, you know, because I'm Ethiopian evangelicals approve it or disapprove it. But that's something I just want to say. In America, what people say, oh, it's totally fine. In Ethiopian culture, completely different. But I'm not okay. saying everyone, but there's some just a commentary. Okay. Alcohol and evangelicals. Interesting cultural uh, tip there. Differences, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess I want to talk a little bit. We don't have to go too much into it about theological education and the challenges of philosophy with theological education. Mm -hmm. I think I know what you're talking about. You, you did say over and over again, so yeah. no one can accuse you of being unclear about this at all because you thank said you, it several you. times. Yeah, yes. You. Yes. You, you were very clear to express your warm uh, memories of Biola university in Southern California uh, as a wonderful place to study many compliments uh, you yeah. you did mention that there is a in in our heritage, the Biola type her heritage, uh, yeah. where you know 
broadly speaking, there's Gordon Clark and there's, yeah. it's a big tent. EJ Carnell, you mentioned, he's a yeah, big yeah. name for yeah. me. I love Carnell. Did you ever read Gordon Lewis? Gordon Lewis on? Yes, I'm probably, I read the one he wrote on the Holy Spirit or something. Something to do with the well, Holy Spirit. Well, Gordon Holy. Lewis, Go Gordon no, no. Lewis wrote. Gordon Fee, Gordon Fee maybe another Gordon person. Fee, oh yeah, maybe, he's a Holy maybe. Spirit guy. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, Gordon yeah, Lewis, Gordon Lewis wrote about Gordon Clark. So I, I first heard yes. about Gordon Clark and okay, mentioned one book, something to do with apologetics. Do you testing Christianity's name? truth claims? Yes, I read that one. Okay, yeah. Yes. Well, he was my mentor in high school. When high I was school? when I was in high school, Gordon Lewis was my mentor. And when yeah. you were in high school, he taught at Denver Seminary and you That's were right. from Middleton. You are well, from he Middleton, went to the right? neighbor he went yeah. to the neighborhood church. There was a Baptist church that okay. was two blocks away from where I grew up. And, and I had a friend, my best friend for a while was at going to that church. He knew Gordon and okay. we brought our hardest questions to him. And so I was introduced to Gordon Clark, Cornelius Van nice. Til, J. Oliver Buswell, Carnell, yeah. all the big names. And I, and I, that's why I developed, started developing my library. Well, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So these these uh, names. What was I going to ask you? Yeah, about um, theological education and my. Yeah, my so theological education. The the issue, of course, Gordon Lewis taught philosophy and he taught theology. So there yeah, was not Denver that Seminary. issue at Denver Seminary as much. Yeah. My my biblical training was at Denver Seminary, and yes. then I transferred that stuff to Talbot and Biola. Okay. So I didn't have to take as much there because I had a course reduction. So I didn't have the same issue, but I heard about it from other people. And I just know, generally speaking, that the way that things are designed. Yeah. You even mentioned it in back in Ethiopia. There's a statistics guy that you were going back and forth about the philosophy of statistics. And that was hard for you as yeah. a sociology major. Uh, it seems like it's not just theology, it's also others, other disciplines have a hard time taking seriously or making time for the philosophical, or maybe they're just, they just feel like they can't handle it. So yeah. I wanted to give you a chance to talk about yeah, that. Yeah, so I had a phone conversation with someone from back home today before I start the conversation here with you. Mm -hmm. And he is reading my book someone a close friend of mine and he was also mentioning that uh my chapter on my theological education and my frustrations and pains okay yeah. so i also asked him he was saying maybe you were were you harsh about you know what happened what they said i tried to make sure my professors i was not targeting my professors yes and That's i will right. just to mention i can just mention this uh, to you right now I think two days ago, probably Scott Ray, you know, our Scott Ray and yeah. uh, Sean McDowell, uh, I think if I say that name correct, he had Eric Tonis. I think his first name is pronounced Seen. 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 I'm okay. kidding. I, that was a joke. I'm sorry. I apologize. Sure. All the Americans are laughing, but it's actually pronounced Sean. And John, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's an Irish, it's an Irish spelling. Yes. Okay. John is, I think, the right one. Yeah. Anyway, I so, apologize. I don't know, no problem. So here is uh, Eric Tony, the New Testament. Yeah, sure. Yeah, he's a great he, preacher. They yeah, they interviewed him. And I was just watching that interview. 
and I was thinking about how much I loved him, especially the way he preached when mm. we were at Grace Abbey Free Church. I, I, I you remember... didn't mention the name of the church. You did not mention the name of the church, but I knew which church you were talking oh, about based I on your love That's what the church I was. Yeah. And if I ever visit California, mm -hmm. that's the church I would visit. Mm -hmm. I'm hardcore evangelical anyway, just to, to remind you. <laughs> I am. Yeah, I had my I conversation tell. with Alex Plato. I told him I would die an evangelical. <laughs> did he try to get you to become Catholic? <laughs> I mean, we had conversations all the time but they said don't worry i will never convert anyway so i'm just talking about my biola yeah. professors and right i had no issues with them, with them but i was just making a commentary so having lived in america now for for a while 19 years by the way now oh. long time and then now i'm a, a christian school teaching students you now some are going to like into youth ministry or all this stuff so I remember how I, I, of course, there was a bias on my side. I cannot hide. I was so much, you know, obsessed with philosophy. I wanted all courses to be, you know, in philosophy stuff. And then, of course, we had to do also theology. And doing theology is not a problem. But I was not sure whether the theology courses would prepare people right. those getting training for the world that's outside of the classroom. That was my concern. And then... Yes. Just, just think about any any topic that comes that's important for Christianity or Christian doctrines. Right. Think about Genesis and the creation story, and mm -hmm. younger, older, now right. all this stuff. Uh, how much of that and the philosophy of science and how science and theology interact? How much of that are students getting like solid training? all the philosophical assumptions there, all those things that could benefit, because anyone who gets a training as like, say, for Master of Divinity and goes into ministry, is going to do ministry with people. Some of them, they are just fed up with religion or you know, right. all this politics, right. religion, all this stuff. And they have questions about science and religion, philosophical questions. Are people getting that training? That's like I'm not trying to convert you now every department to into philosophy. No, I, that's not <laughs> my point. But I have this this frustration. There were a number of logical questions, assumptions that never been get any right. attention. Yeah, I don't want. I'm not suggesting those theologians start to now become philosophers. No, they need to teach theology. That's perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. And then. There are some weird things Christians believe. So say, for example, sure. about rapture. So I just mentioned that in my book. <laughs> so how do you make sense of that? Right. So what's rapture? What about space and time? What about the human nature? Physical human Humans, nature? Uh, angels and demons. Yeah. Yeah. So all that stuff. Sure. I mean, we can we can try to get a handle on that thinking about the nature of space, the nature of physical bodies, right. and what is essential for humans. What, how to understand it. So there are a number of things philosophers can weigh in and maybe... Even the ascension, the ascension yeah, of Jesus. How do you understand that? Where did he go, go up into space? Where did he go? Yeah, and about post-mortem status and what is happening. Are we conscious about our life? When people people die, especially this very common among evangelicals, people say, okay, so see you later, kind of. So what does this mean? Yes. Just think about all those issues. Right. about the post-mortem post status, one, 
and then how can human if the soul can be conscious whether we can right. we can we can tell we that's you that this is me right those issues are really good philosophical topics yes i want theologians and philosophers teach co-teach or do <laughs> write papers together so that those who are getting training in theology you know those of us who got yeah. training in philosophy we can still continue this yes but i want theologians who will just stay teaching theology doing ministry I want them to wrestle with them so that when younger people come and ask questions like crazy questions, metaphysics is so crazy, full of crazy yes. ideas. I want them that's to right. be yeah. So that's the kind of stuff I was thinking. We need more broader education that takes into account the really good stuff Christian philosophers work on. Like there are like so many topics. So that's the yeah. kind of idea that I was trying to communicate. Yeah, I think. I'm going to just throw a couple ideas out there. I think one hurdle to that is that it's a it's an anxiety about time and and yeah. time management and you have 15 weeks, 16 weeks maybe with spring break. You've got you know in the fall you have uh Thanksgiving which gets in the way and takes a week off usually. So you have these these issues um of how do we cover all this? And it's an anxiety of, can I do a competent job of it and rein it in so that the students don't uh, nail me on the evaluations yeah, yeah. of you spent too much time on this. That's not even on the syllabus. That's not even what the classes. Yeah, so there's, yeah. that there's, there's a systemic design issue with the academic calendar year. So yeah. much of what you do is so pure this yeah. whole story mm-hmm. is really about the purity. I would say it's the purity of philosophy mm-hmm. in its, in its essence. It's, it's a very pure, relatively simple thing of wondering yeah. and then systematically with discipline, yeah. pursuing relentlessly those questions what we try to do in, a, in an academic context so that there's accreditation and all this stuff. And so people can feel really good about their grade and that it counts for something is that you try to scrunch that and, and make it fit into a time management kind of a thing and have supervisors that approve everything, uh, whether it's a Dean or a provost. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately the board is, is responsible but also the way it's designed is it's about it's public opinion. It's it. The students are voting by evaluating you. Breaking up. Okay. Can you hear me? Did you hear what I said about the students evaluating that? That's like a, it's a very, it's a popularity contest. So, uh, and yeah, there's a pureness yeah, but about we lose a lot because of that. Yes. I agree. Yeah. So I'm not yeah. sure how much that kind of goes into this, but your mic is working or is it? <laughs> Can you hear me? Yes. So if I want if I want to comment a little bit on this. Yeah, I can hear you. Yes. So there's okay. some breaking up. So I also mentioned in my book 
close to people who academic philosophy the most of the time they write very technical stuff that's not accessible to that's also one problem but there are some books written by philosophers that are accessible i just mentioned recommended a few of them mm -hmm. by the way here is one example there is uh, someone i knew and personally of course he was at biola he did a phd at biola in clinical psychology at Rosemead School of Theology, Psychology. Mm -hmm. After reading my book, he purchased Moreland's and Craig's book, and he's reading it now. Wow. Yes, this is just after reading my book, he's just trying to get some philosophy. Yeah. Oh. So I am hoping that people will get uh, some benefit of reading philosophy. Yes, accessible books, if we recommend for people, that can help. And also, it's good to expose theology students to philosophical topics and see if they want to pursue them further. If they want to pursue them further, recommend books. Or some of them, they can take classes maybe from uh, at Biola, they can take classes from maybe philosophy department. Yeah. So that we can train people, we can equip people. I'm not thinking about apologetics. I'm thinking about, of course, understanding the Christian faith in a very you know, nuanced way. Yes. so that they can have better knowledge about Christianity and also they can serve others. Yeah, that's the intention that they have. That makes sense. The motivation. For I think life. that that's easily doable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have such a pure yeah. understanding, I think. Of, like, you're a pure philosopher. I mean, you're living poor. <laughs> you're like Socrates. <laughs> you're Socrates. Um you had a chapter about being an Uber driver and being, you had some yeah. chapters about being an adjunct professor. Um, yeah. I was an adjunct professor for 15 years. Uh -huh. Very difficult. Very yeah, difficult. Very, very difficult. Very difficult. Very difficult. Did you want to yeah. uh, share any difficult stories that you had that maybe didn't meet, make it into the book? Yeah. So, so yeah, teaching, uh, as an adjunct, especially when teaching as an adjunct involves right driving from one school to another when the schools are really far from each other. That is really time consuming. And as someone who, is, who wants to serve, especially someone who loves philosophy, who wants to read, to write, there's no time to do this. And there's no time to do this. And this a natural desire to learn, to write, to read more, what's current, what's new, and not being able to do that, that is really deeply damaging to how a person you know, could develop. So that is really bad. So that's one frustration I had. Uh, because I had to drive to a lot of schools one in one place what's maybe. what's the furthest you ever drew, drove which schools did hour, you teach at another class and then come back home okay so there was one school you know uh, now josh heater is teaching uh, at one community college he's now full-time uh he's some maybe 37 miles from St. Louis University area. I taught there, uh, one class, for example. And then I had another class in Illinois, uh, Belleville, I think, Illinois. 
that to another uh, 40 miles or 30 miles. Then I had to drive from one school and another direction to Illinois the same day and drive back to my apartment. That just takes a lot of time. And I enjoy teaching and I'm there's nothing that I enjoy in my life more than teaching, of course. That was very difficult. No time to sit down and read. And you know how much I really want to read and then how much I want to interact, no time. And publishing, I mean, I'm not like the kind of person who has this desire craving to publish unless I publish. No, I'm, I want, I will publish whenever I see, you know, there is something I think is valuable and when I have time, I will do it. I don't have any uh, agenda to make, to impress anyone. I never do anything like that. So I will only publish when I see a need. If there is this, for the, the example I mentioned earlier about burden of proof and Quentin Smith and how one part of philosophy is neglected and not good to do to pursue truth. I want to address that one because I don't see that a lot in the literature. When I see a need, I will write. Uh, my, I want to write to turn my dissertation into a book because I haven't yeah. seen anyone still engaging. So, so those are kind of things I want to write, but I had no time to do, to do those. I will right. do at some point whenever I have time. And Uber driving was, of course, uh, completely so strange. I have never done anything that's non-academic. Right. It took me like a lot of process thinking, how am I supposed to do something that is non-academic? And because I have had to do something to support my family. Yeah. And I would do anything, of course, legal and morally okay <laughs> to support my family. But doing something that is non-academic, I had a hard time conceiving myself doing it. And I had to do it. And then, of course, uh, I had to stop it when the pandemic came. And, yeah. and I had to stop it. And then, of course, I moved here. But that was very tough. I mean, I'm, I, there's some sense of I'm a conversational person. I'm a people kind of person. I That's enjoy right. talking to people, strangers. Honestly, I even I if I didn't have to do Uber, if I would just uh, if I want to do just to connect with people, I would just go and drive and talk to people. That in that yeah. sense, yeah. If it was something I just wanted to do it, sure. It's not like a big deal because I want to engage people, but I wasn't. I didn't choose to do it. I was right. forced to do it. Right, that right, is the right. difference. And okay. then the way it takes my time and it took my time. That was very very different. But I mean, yeah. it's good that I had I had this experience in my life to see what it's like to do something that's non-academic I've never done before. Right. And then I also I learned something about how people struggle in America, doing mm. you know, two jobs, three. Yeah. I never had that experience, so I start to see this is how hard life is for yeah. many people. That's right. And I, I'm, not, I'm not regretting or saying anything negative, but that also is a perspective I got from doing it. And it, it, overall, I mean, it, get, it gave me some time to reflect on my life. And then fortunately, I moved here and I have more time now to read. And I hope to publish some on topics that I said, I think I want to do some kind of writing. Uh... Tedley, I've got a couple more questions for you. I hope you're okay on time. Are you okay on time? Okay. Okay. Feel free to ignore the I question. Think I but, okay. Feel free to ignore the question, but because normally at the very beginning I ask 
is there anything what? you want to avoid? And I know that you already told me, but your family, you don't mention. Your mic is breaking up. Can you do something about it? Yes, maybe your uh, yes, something. How's it? How's it now? It's good. So if it's not breaking up again, go ahead. Okay, just tell me if it breaks up. Doing okay. 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 All right. I'll 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 show you. Yeah. Is your is your family with you? Yes. Okay. You yes, don't yes. mention them mm -hmm. very much in your you you very you very very little mention your family. So sometimes when you say your family, I don't know who you mean. Do you mean your mother yes. or do you mean your wife or whatever? But I, you know, if you don't want to talk about that, you don't have to. Yeah, but so I just wanted to know if you were guy, you, if you were all together. No, I would. Yeah, I can't. I, yeah, I can't, I can't talk a little bit. So, uh, to keep focus on my, this intellectual component, the focus of my book mm -hmm. is mostly about my intellectual strategy to my own struggles, uh, you know, all those life aspects of my life mm -hmm. that is not directly related. Right. I'm not saying being a father and you now being a husband, those things did not have anything to do with my intellectual life. They do, but I just mentioned when I needed to support my family and I did this. Yeah. And then I also mentioned somewhere about my wife. She had to pay a price, a huge price, uh, because she had to move to the States to be with me to raise our children together. And then she had to give up her really, really good job back home. Mm. And then that also uh, brought a lot of, you know, painful experience for us because she was not able to work uh, mm. because uh, the visa the, the visa she had did not allow her to work. Just think about this look, because someone who is competent, who can work, who can make money, who can support family, but there are now, we live in a country and we have to, we live in a different country and we have to abide by the law, of course. So I'm not right. against the law. So yeah. in order, when you want to live according to the law, uh, you, you pay price, of course. There are people who violate the law and they make money, things like that. But I wanted to right. take to the law. And then that also was very, very hard in, ter in terms of you now her just staying home. Right. Very, very painful experience. And that is just one story. The rest, I mean, just raising kids. And the rest is my family. I mean, uh, I have sisters back home. Others now older people they are, they are they are no longer alive, and I have friends back home. I communicate with them, so I didn't bring a lot of stories about you know family yeah. here. It's not it's not it's not like a autobiography. It's only right. more focused on intellectual stuff. So that's why I try to say something like minimum about it. And you that makes sense. And you are the youngest yeah. of your mother's children. I am. And how many children, yes, yes. Do, do, I, how I, many brothers and sisters do you have? We were all together eight. Uh, the one of the eight uh, died before I was born. So, but at least okay. uh, I can say eight of us. And, and I was the youngest. You mentioned living with your brother when he died. Yeah. That. Yeah. No, he's and, no longer. Yeah. And of yeah. course that's in the book. And I, I read that and I, yeah. I can't imagine 
how you were feeling at the time. How did you deal with that? Was that pretty traumatic for you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I tried to manage my grief uh, as mm -hmm. a philosopher. <laughs> yeah. Of course, I, I, I tried to think about it. There are issues. There are issues. I could have written like a full book about my family and my grief. Um, uh, I didn't because I was not writing a book on like this all kinds of you know, aspects of my life. But there were issues at some point if I write more on some personal aspects of my life, I would bring up some really serious issues, painful issues about losing you know, my brothers and even when I lost my mom, of course, she was older, but I was not able to go back home. And uh, my the way I can describe both my mom and my love is very different. And if I never uh, became a believer, a Christian, I would say I have seen the best love conceivable in my life from my mom. Mm. So that's like the best love I can imagine. That's the kind of love I received from my mom. Yeah. And of course, we had the best relationship. And then, of course, she died when she was about 90 years old. But I would still prefer to be, you know, there. But I yes. was not able to do it. So those things yes. are really, really tough. But there are things that I accept, things that are inevitable, and things that you cannot change, like being stoic to some extent. At times, I, I just accept facts, you know, deal with them. And if there's nothing you can change about it, uh, just move on. So that's kind of, uh, that's why I didn't say a lot about those issues in my book. Well, I was interested in just from a psychological At perspective. They did not distract me. Yeah, they did not distract me from still pursuing what I just cared about. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I said, there's nothing I can do about this. So I kept right. moving forward. So in that right. sense, uh, I... Yeah, I kept you know, my pace and I kept moving forward again. Yeah. To myself. Okay. Well, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about it if you wanted yeah. to add anything to it. Um, so I appreciate that. Uh, family is very important. And I know that how we experience things emotionally and uh, also how we store that kind of trauma in our body the kind of uh, nervous yeah. system states of fight or flight and also rest and digest, which is ideal for philosophy. Ideally, you want to be in rest and digest for the nervous system. A fight or flight is not ideal. And also uh, the nervous system state of shutdown or dorsal vagal shutdown or freeze is not ideal either. But um, it's because you, you have this philosophical way of looking at everything, you, you look at it as, an invitation to talk about the problem of evil. Think about the problem of evil, the problem <laughs> of pain. And you, you're very explicit about that in your, your, the suffering you talked about the stories yeah. of being at Biola and wanting to help your mom being on yeah. full scholarship and, and, yeah. and choosing not to how you chose not to work, even though you could have, but yeah, you made promises yeah. and you felt called by God and God answered your prayer. So it's, it's, um, it seems like at every step of the way you yeah. felt confident that God was answering your prayers. Did you feel that every step of the way, even through the suffering? 
Yeah, I did. Uh, I don't, don't think there was any moment when I had any doubt. Okay, I just hold. I didn't About quite get what you said. Hold, hold on one second. Uh, I'm gonna pause it real quick. Okay, okay we're back. So, so yeah. we're back. So, uh, yes, the when it comes to the calling, whether God called me, I don't think I ever had any doubt. But about how things would unfold, uh, of course, that would be you know uh, something very hard to take. But I had always this confidence that God would answer my prayers, you know, at whatever time God chose to. And I was perfectly fine with that. Mm. And I never had this desire to figure out what God wants me to do tomorrow or something. I just want to be faithful and I want to remain faithful and confident that he would answer my prayers regarding the future, what I need at that moment. And then even when I struggled with my, what should I do about my mom? Should I just start working and not stay at Biola longer, send money back home, whatever? I still had confidence I would complete school and at some point God would give my mom years, some years, so that I can do something. And that happened. Yeah, yeah that happened. He, yeah. She, was, she lived long enough to, to see me getting married. That was one prayer she always prayed to see me getting married mm -hmm. and to see my children. And she was able to see my two children. Oh, that's awesome. In person. Yeah, in person. I mean, she, she heard them. She embraced them. She did that. And that happened. And that was my ultimate prayer, asking God, please give her, you know, enough time. Uh, yeah. That's awesome. That's the kind of, yeah. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Okay, Tedley, I have a question about the lady from Fuller Seminary who came to Ethiopia, mm -hmm. and she said something about race. Yeah. And I, it would be remiss for me not to bring that up. It's in your book, mm -hmm. but it's very small section of your book. But she said something about your interest in these yeah. philosophical, the classic philosophy, ethics, epistemology, yeah. metaphysics. metaphysics. And she said, that's for white people or something. And so what yeah. did you say? Yeah. And, 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 and how do you understand your her question and your response to that question. So I joke by saying I am a white person in a black now skin. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, she was. I think I don't think I said that in my book. I don't remember saying. Was she, she black? Was, she was. She was Asian American, by the way. She was Asian. Okay. Yeah. So uh, she was Asian. She was an American, Asian American, and she was with a dean, uh, academic dean of Fuller Seminary at that time. And they were there you know, to, for a visit, to give a public lecture. The academic dean was giving a public lecture. And then I had correspondence with him. I was interested in apologetics as well. He wrote a book on apologetics. So we had conversations. And then she hears me having a conversation about issues. And then she heard okay. my interest in philosophy. And says, that's like what white people do. I said, I, mean, I was joking. I'm a white person in black skin. <laughs> <laughs> And I mean, here is one. But you don't really was, believe that, though, right? I mean, you I believe. I, mean, I don't yeah. believe in. I believe there are skin color differences. That's that's it. I, I right. don't believe in all this. So yeah. I was just saying. I was trying to say to her, yeah, that's what many people think. White people, you know, yeah. usually male whites, 
attend to be not even famous. <laughs> right. So so people say that, but I was just saying, yeah, my interest aligns with the interest of those mostly who do this. But I mean, as when it comes to this, just a point I want to make, uh, like a side note. When it comes to African philosophy, for example, there's African philosophy, Asian philosophy, now this philosophy, that philosophy. Uh, deep down in my heart, I don't believe in any of that. I yeah. believe there's only human philosophy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, our that context, comes across in your book very well, by the way. Yeah, there, there is a, a sense and context to affect language, you know, world views, those things. I mean, sure. that no one is denying that. But no. at the end of the day, we are all human beings, and the questions right. are questions for all of humanity. Yeah. And then in that sense, I'm I'm not like white person, black person, whatever. But right. I was just making a joke. Sure. I was just saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. mostly these are the, the kind of people who are interested in those questions. But I am, right. I'm like them, kind of. <laughs> but of course, well, and I don't have, for example, I tried. Hmm? Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, you could ask very easily the lady, how do you know that? And what you mean by the question is exactly what in line with what you're saying is the yeah, knowledge. I mean, we, how do you know? Yeah, we just we mentioned, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she, we just mentioned those areas. Right, right, right. Well, actually, a lot of uh, a lot of white people don't even like it. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of white people yeah, don't even, are not even interested in that stuff. So. Yeah, we're having technical difficulties. Yeah, no, here. no. <laughs> There are many that they don't even know what metaphysics is. <laughs> no, yeah, I think yeah, most people yeah. on the campus so don't know what metaphysics is. Yeah. Yeah, and I was just making this comment, a brief comment. I, uh, for example, I don't. You, you are, in, you have a PhD in political science, correct? Right. Yeah. Yes. So you know a lot about politics, yes. And I, I have interest in politics, but. I could never develop a serious interest in political philosophy, for example. Okay, so you have seen in my book, I comment on Ethiopian politics. Right. But political philosophy as a discipline uh, right. or social yeah. politics. If I have any interest, those those things that interest me in political philosophy, they come from epistemology or metaphysics. Yeah. So that's still yeah. me. Sure. If I yeah, do any political sense. philosophy, I will focus on issues that are metaphysics. Yeah, that, that's me. Well, that I think interest. that... I think that those people who try to specialize in social or political philosophy and they don't first think about metaphysics and epistemology and ethics and they have logic that that yeah. they're not going to do a very good job yeah. of political philosophy I think yeah. so just, or anything else constitutional law the There's a yeah, lot of stuff in constitution There's a lot of stuff in constitutional yeah. law that doesn't make a lot of sense because they haven't done the heavy lifting of of being clear of thinking through yeah uh what is it they're saying and how do you know and what it, are you are you making a, a claim about reality here or what are you doing so um the the book is yeah delightful for me to read yeah. and um it's called A Philosopher's Testimony About the God Who Calls by Tedla G. Wolde Johannes. And he's got a PhD from St. Louis University. 
He's a visiting assistant professor of philosophy and director of the Center for Non-Western Studies at Huntington University, which is in Huntington, Indiana. Can uh, people reach out to you by email if they want to chat sure. with you about philosophy? Do you want to make yourself yeah, available, Tedla? So I, I'm, if they Google, if they Google my name, yeah, you can do my T, my initial, first name, initial, and the Walde Johannes. Uh huh. And T at, Walde at Johannes. That's my email, and ask my school. Yes. Huntington .edu. At my school. Yeah. Huntington. Okay. Edu. Uh -huh. They'll find yeah. it. They'll find yeah, it. T Walde Johannes. T Walde Johannes at Huntington Edu. Tedla, it was really wonderful hanging out with you again. I miss you. I miss our yeah. times. I, I'll just share yeah, one brief memory I have. Just, just well, actually, several memories. But that, yeah. They're all summarized in the same way. And that is mm -hmm. when I knew Tedla, I knew always where yeah. I could find Tedla. I could find Tedla in the library. I go to the Biola library, mm -hmm. and I will find Tedla. Yeah, he was always in the library <laughs> and I feel like he knew where everything was in the library mm -hmm. and he knew about books I'd never heard of. And this is my experience. My testimony <laughs> about you is you were Socrates in the library, living in the library <laughs> and always, 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 if you were up, if you were walking, you were ready to talk uh, anytime, anytime about philosophy. Mm -hmm. But if you were, if he was reading, okay, let him read, make mm -hmm. sure he can read because he wants his time. But if he's walking yeah. around, then you can talk to yeah. him and mm -hmm. he's Socrates. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I, I spent a lot of time in the library. One time I, I think I wrote a letter to, Library to extend library hours on Saturdays. <laughs> Did yeah, you really? I didn't have enough time, enough library time. So I had to write a letter, I think, to extend library time, library hours on Saturdays. I think probably a lot of the time. Probably a lot of the time you were in there writing famous philosophers, and they're writing you back, and you're reading what they said. <laughs> you, well, I was you're... busy doing that, and the library was yeah, <laughs> at a good place. Tedla was very. So this was a great conversation, Lucas. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was very it was a blessing to have you, Tedla. Thank you so much for arranging this conversation, and I missed your sense of humor. <laughs> you could have been a famous comedian with like millions and millions of dollars if you wanted to do that. Me? Wow! It's <laughs> just yeah. because of how your funny of I look. I would mention a few philosophers with a really, really good sense of humor. Of course, Alvin Plantinga, for sure. Mm -hmm. And of course, you and also oh. Brian Francis. Do you know Brian Francis? No, I don't. Uh, he's a philosopher, epistemology person, metaphysics person. He used to teach at Fordham University. Oh. He was a colleague of John Greco, I think. Oh, wow. Uh, when you read his writings, his sense of humor is amazing. I told him by email one time. And William Lycan, uh, William Lycan, philosophy of language. Philosophy of really? mind, William Lycan. Wow. Hold on, I'm writing these down. William Lycan. Is that Lycan? William Lycan. If Lycan is the way I say correct, L-Y-C-A-N. How do you spell his last name? Lycan. 
William L Y C A N Lycan. Is that Lycan? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I know, I know the name. I know the name. I have one of his books. He's funny. That is where you. Yeah, he uh, is the. Yeah, I actually have his philosophy of language book. I can't read his work. Read that book. That's one of the books. His really sense of humor. And also Brian Francis. Uh, Francis, I don't know. Is that correct? F-R-A-N-C-E-S. Like, could be a okay. name for women. I don't know. Brian Francis. And he's so at, his, his, he's he at Fordham? He has a really good sense of humor. He's in New he's York? He's not there now. I mean, he's somewhere in... No, not in America. He's somewhere in uh, Middle East. I from Facebook posts that I have seen. Well, that's very. I told you, uh, he's really funny. That's so very you are high funny. compliment. Alvin Plantin is funny. Yeah. <laughs> that's very high compliment. Ted. Yeah, well, you are you. like among those guys. Now, William Lycan. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, wow. The sense of humor is amazing. God bless you. Thank you very much for that. I I really appreciate that.